Would you take your Bibles with me and open to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11, as we continue our study through Luke's gospel, this morning our text is Luke 11, verse 14 through verse 54. And through the sermon, I do want to read the entirety of the text and we'll work through in detail. So I just want to give you just a flavor of this text and our reading before the preaching of God's Word. So if you'll look at Luke 11, verse 45, I want to read verse 45 through verse 54. Luke 11, 45 through verse 54. And if you're able, let me invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word. Luke 11, beginning in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Would you remain standing? as we pray. Father, as has already been prayed a few times in the service today, I pray as well. Would you enable me to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because we desperately need your word to be proclaimed to us so that we might be transformed, so that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love, your word and what you have said to us. We pray this for our good and in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The first five centuries of the church were an extremely interesting and helpful time for the development of how we think about who Jesus Christ is. For basically 500 years, the church decided that they would focus on this one topic, thinking through the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. There hasn't really been a time like that since those first five centuries, and you and I stand on the shoulders. We are in debt to those early believers who thought through how to articulate what the Bible was teaching about who Jesus is, the fact that, that you and I say in this language feels quite natural to us, that, that Jesus is God the Son, the divine person of the Son who took on a fully human nature so that we have is, as we look at Jesus, we see the God-man, fully divine and fully human. 
That language, which sounds as common to us and natural to us, uh, was debated, discussed as they studied the Word of God, and the church came to this consensus of understanding who Jesus is. Now, what may sound odd to you is that that discussion came about largely because there was false teaching, largely because individuals were going around saying things about Jesus that weren't true. It wasn't, in other words, that the church did not know who Jesus was until false teaching came along. It was rather that once falsehood was stated, the church understood we need to articulate more clearly what is true in light of this falsehood. And again, that reality that, that falsehood sometimes has to surface before we know what truths we need to articulate clearly, as odd as it sounds, I think it's actually the way it almost always works. For example, my guess is, a hundred years ago, no statement of faith in any local church said, marriage is between one man and one woman for life. It's not that we didn't believe that, it's that we didn't think anyone else did not believe that. We thought everyone believed it until it was falsely opposed, until it was opposed with false teaching, then we realized we needed to articulate this truth. It's sometimes against the backdrop of that false teaching that we realize that we need to articulate it and see truth very clearly. I think that when you come to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 54 that we're looking at this morning, this text can in some ways serve in the same way. And here's what I mean. When you read Luke 11, 14 through 54, you'll see that as Luke thematically organizes his material once more, you've seen this over and over again as we've worked through Luke's gospel, he seems to take themes, like themes, and put them together. Well, in this section, he takes those who are challenging Jesus, who are saying things like he cast out demons by the power of the devil, or they, they challenge him on not holding to some of the traditions that the Pharisees have established, or they demand signs of him. He takes all of this opposition that Jesus gets from the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, and he puts it all together, and then he takes Jesus' harshest rebuke of those opponents of his and compiles it as well. And when you read this text, you can think, how can we really learn from this when it's just individuals who are constantly opposing, constantly challenging, constantly coming against Jesus, and then Jesus rebuking them harshly? But one of the great benefits this does for us is that as we see how Jesus challenges them, as we see how he rebukes them, it provides a backdrop for us to understand the commitment that he requires of his followers. In other words, we can take what we see in this text and see if Jesus is noting that they do not do what they ought to do, then we can, against that backdrop, learn what it is that we as his followers ought to be doing. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. I think as we read this text, we can understand the commitment that is required of those who follow Jesus Christ. And I want to list three of them this morning. The first one is this. We must commit ourselves to Christ's purpose and mission. We must commit ourselves, as Christ's followers, we must commit ourselves to Christ's purpose and mission. The text begins in verse 14 with Luke telling us, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. So this is just one more of those miracles of Jesus. He comes upon a man 
The man is being demonized. The demon, it seems, has taken away the man's ability to speak. Jesus casts out the demon. As soon as he casts out the demon, the man's ability to speak returns. People begin marveling. Of course, that's something you should marvel at. But that's not the only reaction Jesus gets. In verses 15 and 16, we see another reaction. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, we're going to look at Jesus responding to those who wanted a sign from him in a second, but the first group says, this may look good to everybody, everybody's marveling, Jesus is doing good works, but actually he's not. Jesus is not doing good. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which was basically a nickname for the devil. In other words, he's doing this work that looks good, really, by the power of the devil. So if you're about to praise him, not so fast. He's wicked. And in verse 17, we're told that apparently they were saying this among themselves, but as we find constantly in the gospel of Luke, Jesus knows their thoughts. And so here as well, we get Jesus' response. In verse 17 and 18, we read, but he knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, Jesus says, let's just think about this a bit rationally for a second. You're challenging that I'm casting out demons who are the devil's minions, those whom he sends out to do his bidding. So you're saying that when I cast out those demons, I'm doing it by the power of the devil. One, that, that doesn't make sense. That's, that would be as if the devil is, is sending individuals to do two opposing things. Not, not only is he sending two individuals to do two different things, but he's sending them to do the opposite things. This would be like the devil getting all the demons together and saying, all right, let's get our game plan together. I want a number of you to go out and torment humans. In fact, some of you make it so that they are not able to speak. And that group says, yeah, that sounds great. And he says, all right, let's go wreak havoc. And he gets the other group, and he says, now I want you guys to go and cast them out so that the humans are able to speak again. And all the havoc that was wreaked upon them is removed. She says, that's basically what you're accusing me to do. And don't you understand that, that the devil is not going to work against his own purposes? A kingdom that's divided will not stand. This is, this is utterly irrational. Not only that, but Jesus notes something else. You see, these, these Pharisees, these individuals who had been opposing Jesus, they also knew of many others whom they thought fondly of who would claim to cast out demons as well. And they weren't saying that Jesus was doing anything that looked different than any of them. If others were casting out demons and Jesus was casting out demons, then they're all doing the same thing. And Jesus points out in verse 19, if there's really then no difference between what we're doing and you're saying that I'm doing this by the power of the devil, then what does that say about your own? Verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but whom do, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Come to your own conclusions. If you want to indict me, you have to indict all of them as well. And then Jesus turns on the offensive. In verses 20 through 23, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he takes, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, let me give you a a glimpse as to what's going on. When I cast out demons, I'm demonstrating the power of God's kingdom. In other words, God's rule and His reign is being shown in the fact that I am God's king and I am here in your midst. Now, Satan is like a strong man, and he's got his goods. He's, he's got his people that he's terrorizing, that he's tormenting. He's got them at bay. He's got them kind of trapped, if you will. He says, here's what's going on. Every time I cast out a demon, I'm demonstrating my own power, the power of God over against the enemy. It's as if I'm taking Satan as a strong man, and I'm binding him. And then once I bind him, I set him aside and say, and now I'm going to take your goods. That's what's happening every time an individual is being delivered from demonic torment. Jesus is demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God over his enemy. But what this highlights is that God's king is standing right in their midst, and they're opposing him. And so Jesus warns them, If you're not committed to me, if your purpose, your mission, your life is not about me, then you're against me. And then he gives a picture in verses 24 through 26 of what can happen even if an individual has a demon cast out of him or even if an individual decides to clean up his life, but he does not turn to Christ. He says in verses 24 through 26, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person It passes through waterless places seeking rest. Finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it will find the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus says, imagine that demons are driven out from an individual, but compare the individual to a house. Now it's as if the house is cleared out. But if nothing happens, then those individuals go to waterless places. That is, I think the idea is they go looking for humans. But if they they go to waterless places, places where humans aren't, then they continue on until they find humans. They might even come back to the individual from whom they were first cast out. And then this time, they're going to bring seven of their friends, and the first state will actually have been better than this latter state when the demons come back and torment them. In other words, Jesus is warning them even if you clean up your life, you do all kinds of things so that you look better, but you do not replace the evil with your commitment to me, a faith in me, then your life can be worse than it was before these days came. What Jesus is saying to them is, you must align yourself with me. You must align yourself with my purpose and my vision. Now, if we take Jesus' rebuke to them, that they are not for him, they are against him, then we can kind of see against the backdrop of that, in contrast to that, we can see a reminder to us that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we must be able to say that the purpose and mission of our life is the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ, that we are on board with him, that not working against him, we are working with him. This is one reason why we say very consistently here at Cornerstone, we encourage individuals to make sure that they are members of a local church. If you're visiting here today, we would love for you to join this church if you're a believer. We're not the only local church in town that that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many others that preach the gospel. 
but we're simply saying that we believe that when Jesus lays out his mission and his purpose, it involves individuals joining themselves with a local church. This is why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, after saying all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, he tells us, go and make disciples, baptizing them, that is, allowing them to profess their faith and baptism, and the church bringing them into its membership. And once the individual then is part of a local church, baptizing them and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, then in that context where they have pastors who will oversee them, members who will help hold them accountable, individuals who will love them, a church who will discipline them, in that context, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is Jesus' mission. That's what we call the Great Commission. And if as an individual believer, you are deciding, I will be wiser than God, I know what's best for me, and it's not to align myself with that mission, then I want to warn you that you are not in line with the purpose and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He commands us to make disciples through the local church. So I want to encourage all of us to examine our lives and just make sure as we look at ourselves that we're not somehow trying to stand on the outside from Jesus' mission or try to be wiser than Him and come up with what we think is a better way of life for us but that we're simply looking to align ourselves with what Christ's mission is. That's the first point we see in this text. We must commit ourselves to Christ's purpose and mission. Second, we must commit ourselves to obeying Christ's word. We must commit ourselves to obeying Christ's word. Interestingly, the next section of text in verse 27 starts positively. Well, maybe at least more positively. A woman goes to praise Jesus, actually. She says in verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. This is her way of praising Jesus. She's saying basically, you are amazing. Consequently, how blessed was your mother? Uh, the womb that bore you, the breast that nursed you, right? She's praising how blessed is Mary. Jesus could have said here, yeah, She's pretty blessed to be able to have me, right? But he doesn't go that route. Instead, he says in verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, now why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he just say, sure, that was a pretty amazing honor that the Lord bestowed on Mary. But he doesn't say that. He says, I want to direct you rather the fact that blessed are those who hear my word and keep it, that is, obey it. I think it's probably because Jesus is aiming to teach two things. One, he wants all of those to know that it's not only those who have familial connections with him, who can say, I'm his brother, I'm his mother, something like that. It's not only that group who are able to be blessed. But maybe the second point is even more important. He wants them to know even if you have a familial connection, you're not automatically blessed. You know, it's interesting. There's whole sections of the church uh, that baptize infants. Um, we don't. As Baptists here at Cornerstone, we are Baptists. We baptize only those willing to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we think is in line with the Bible. But interestingly, one of the main reasons why individuals baptize babies is because they would say, when you look at the Old Testament, 
It was Abraham, for example, was required to circumcise, to show this mark, the sign of the covenant, circumcision to his physical offspring. So when Abraham had Isaac, Isaac was, offspring, uh, was circumcised. When, when, when Isaac would have uh, Jacob, Esau, they were circumcised, right? And so it's this, this genealogical principle, this genealogical connection. I literally am your family member. I was descended from you, and so I'm part of the covenant people. And sometimes they would say, then when you get to the New Testament, there's nothing that goes against that. There's nothing that speaks against that familial connection. And so we need to continue that practice. But what's interesting is it seems rather to be the opposite. Every time somebody brings up a familial connection to Jesus, he speaks against it. How blessed is your mother? No, no, no. How blessed is the one who keeps my word? Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. No, 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 no. My mother and my brothers are those who do the will of my father. Or do not say, I'm fine. We're descendants from Abraham. If God wanted to, he could raise up descendants from Abraham from these stones. You need to repent and believe, right? Constantly, Jesus is pointing us away from relying on any family connections and thinking that somehow that puts us in line with being in good place with God. Rather, he tells us, hear my word and keep it. Obey my word. Those who keep and obey my word are my people. So Jesus begins this, this next section reminding us of the importance of obeying his word. Then, in verses 29 through 32, he rebukes individuals who are demanding a sign instead of simply obeying what Christ says. In verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, I mentioned in my small group on Wednesday night, every time that it seems in the Gospels you read a phrase like this, as the crowds were increasing, get ready for Jesus to say something that's going to drive some away. The crowds are increasing, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Right? This is the kind of thing Jesus does. And so here you find it again. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, here's his church growth movement material, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, this is interesting. We read earlier that some were demanding of Jesus a sign. This isn't the kind of thing, I think, that uh, we might sometimes live in our own lives where we say, Lord, I want to obey you. I just want to make sure that what I'm doing is what you're calling me to do, what you're directing me to do. And so would you confirm that, right? That's not what's going on here. What they're saying is we will not believe you unless you produce for us a sign. And so their stance is one of opposition to Jesus. So Jesus' answer is, no sign's going to be given to you other than the sign of Jonah. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? Jesus doesn't elaborate specifically on what it is. Well, some commentators say the sign of Jonah is simply the fact that Jonah preached, remember God sent him to the Ninevites and Jonah preached a message of repentance. Repent of your sins or else God's going to judge you. And they would say, when you look at Jesus' life, Jesus also is preaching a message of repentance. Repent and believe. And so they might say the sign is simply that Jesus will preach repentance, like Jonah preached repentance. 
Now, that may be it, but I find it hard to believe that no one would have thought when they heard the name Jonah about the fact that a fish swallowed him and spit him back out. I mean, could you imagine us sitting in the crowd that day and Jesus says, let's hear the sign of Jonah, and later we're sitting around talking about it, and somebody goes, what do you think he meant by the sign of Jonah? Somebody goes, I don't know, Jonah. You think he meant anything about the fact that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and spit back out so that it looked like he was going to die and then he was living? And somebody goes, no, it couldn't be that. Well, why in the world do we mention Jonah? There's like dozens of other individuals who preach messages of repentance. It's Jonah alone who looked like he faced certain death for three days and then was spit out to life. I think what Jesus is saying is the only sign that's going to be given to you is the fact that the Son of Man will live and die. Unlike Jonah, it wasn't as if he is going to face certain death. He will face actual death. But then he is going to come back to life. But even then, amazingly, they will not believe. And then Jesus very boldly, once more, we've said this many times in the Gospels, but I want to make it clear again because you're going to hear this again and again and again. Sometimes the unbelieving world says, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Well, here's a then good moral teacher who's not only said he's God, but the reason Jesus can't be a good moral teacher is because he comes along and says, one greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south came to Solomon and heard what he said and listened to his wisdom and obeyed it. And she's going to condemn you because if she obeyed Solomon, then one greater than Solomon is here. In other words, the Ninevites listened to Jonah. The queen of the south listened to Solomon. And I'm greater than Jonah and I'm greater than Solomon and you don't listen to me. You don't hear my word. You do not obey my word and therefore you will be judged. Finally, Jesus then gives a parable, a picture of what it looks like to obey his word or to disobey his word. In verse 33, Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your whole body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives light. Now, my guess is this parable can be a bit confusing to us when we hear the eye is the lamp of the body. Because I think our temptation is to think as if the eye representing the lamp is shining light out. Because that's what a light does, right? It shines light out. I think the idea, rather, is that the eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus is saying, in the fact that it lets light in. It shines the light in. Maybe, maybe like these windows right here allow light to come streaming into this room so that it lights up the room. Jesus is saying, that's how an eye works. If an eye is healthy, it takes light and allows it into the body. And so it lights up the whole body. But if the eye is unhealthy, it does not allow light to come into the body, and the body is then consequently full of darkness. That's the picture he's getting. Well, what's he describing? He's giving you know, an optometrist lesson here. No, no, no. I think he's using this as an image for how the Word of God comes to us. If we receive the Word of God 
and we see the word of God as light and allow it to come into us, it can transform and shape all of who we are, making all of us healthy from the inside out, if you will. It can transform us and change us and make us more like Christ. On the other hand, if we take the light that is given to us, the word of God, and we hold it at bay and we do not allow it to come in, we do not receive God's word that he has spoken to us, then it will lead to a corrupting reality in our lives. The reality is, what Jesus is saying here is that you and I, if we're going to oppose God's word, will only become more corrupt. And the only way that you and I can grow more healthy, can grow more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ, is by hearing and receiving and obeying His word. So I want to say to us as individuals then, in light of this rebuke that we see here, if you think back to how this text then is put together, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus praises, blessed is the one not who nursed me, but the one who hears and obeys my word. Verses 29 through 32, listen to what I say and obey, even as the Ninevites listen to Jonah and one greater than Jonah is here. Or verses 33 now through 36. Let the light shine in and receive it. Don't block it so that your body becomes dark. It's a reminder to each of us that we must commit ourselves to obeying God's word. It is simply true that we as believers do not drift toward holiness. We drift away from holiness. The Word of God is what we need to be a light shining into our eyes, shining into our bodies, shining into our hearts, and transforming us. And so I want to encourage you as an individual Christian to commit your life to knowing and obeying God's Word. This is so important to us as your pastors, that, that we've structured the entire service of our church. Every time we gather on Sundays, we've structured the entire service to send out the message to emphasize the importance and the centrality of the Word of God. If you look at what we do every Sunday morning, it's just a simple God speaks and we respond pattern. We start the service like we did this morning. We read a call to worship this morning or Psalm 96, and we all stood and we heard God's word. And then we responded to it by praying and singing. And then what happened? Tim Ellsworth came up and he read to us again God's word, keeping it central so that we realize everything we do is hearing and obeying and responding to God's word. We hear God's word and again we sing, we pray. I stand to preach and I read God's word and then we take a lot of time in the middle of the service to dedicate ourselves to making sure that we understand God's word so that we can obey God's word. And then we'll again respond to the word by singing, by coming to the table and then the service will conclude as Pastor Tom will come in a bit and he will stand and deliver the benediction which is simply a quotation of the word of God. And we will go out from this place obeying what we have heard. Everything that we have done is so that years from now, if none of us are here but Cornerstone Community Church is worshiping in the same way we always have, it will constantly be getting the message the Christian life is about hearing and receiving and obeying God's word. So I want to encourage you as individuals, make sure that you're not only 
committing yourselves to reading God's Word privately, and that's something you need to do on a, in a detailed way. One of the things we discussed again in my small group Wednesday night was the fact that uh, the most mature believers around are those who take time to schedule their time reading God's Word. We typically do not go for our, through our day and just stumble into reading and praying. Something we schedule. But not only then, make sure you have time in your life when you're meditating on God's Word, but also make sure that your life is committed to gathering with the saints so that we might hear and respond and obey to God's Word. We as believers must commit ourselves to obeying Christ's Word. And then finally, number three, we must commit our entire being to following Jesus. We must commit our entire being to following Jesus. Now, I don't love the way this point reads. I thought about different ways to say it, but I couldn't think of any better. Uh, and I think you'll see as we work through verses 37 through 54 why it is that I make this point this way. The text begins with a Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home. We read in verses 37 and 38, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, when we read that, we might think, ah, the Pharisee is simply pointing out that Jesus needs to have better hygiene. But I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think there was a developed germ theory among the Pharisees in the first century. I think rather what's going on is that the Pharisees has developed an extra-biblical law. That is a law that was outside of the Bible. You see, the Bible does say something about washing one's hands. In Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21, the priest would be commanded to wash their hands before handling the, the offerings at the altar. It was, a, it was a, a purification ritual that they would go through. It seems that the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes had taken that law that God had given and said, if that's what God commands, then we'll also do this other thing that God doesn't command. It, it might appear to some as if they're righteous, but really they're just making laws where there are no laws. And so Jesus comes into the Pharisee's house. No doubt he would have known this was the ritual. I mean, he just very easily could have washed his hands the same way the Pharisee did, and all would have been fine. But it seems that Jesus is looking to antagonize him a bit on this day. And he specifically does not wash his hands because he wants to have this conversation. And the Pharisee, according to verse 38, is astonished, cannot believe that Jesus is not willing to bow to their extra-biblical laws. And Jesus responds in verses 39 through 41. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus says, you Pharisees are only concerned with the outside. Like, like if you have a, a, a coffee cup, and you're constantly washing the outside, but the inside of it is just filthy, and you, you just polish the outside, you clean the outside. Everybody that looks at it from the outside says, what a clean coffee cup. But if they only got to look at the inside, they would say, what a disgusting coffee cup. Jesus says, that's how you are. You're so concerned to appear holy. Everywhere you go, you, you want people to look at you and note that you're holy, that you're impressive. 
But the reality is inside you're corrupt. You're full of greed. You're chasing after prestige. You're doing all kinds of wickedness. What you need to do is rather give alms from within. Commit yourself wholly from within to the Lord. This is what Paul says when he says to the Roman believers, give your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Commit the whole of yourself to God. Let that be your giving. Not, Lord, I give you this bit, but God, you have all of me, and I will obey you. Jesus warns us against merely appearing godly on the outside while being corrupt on the inside. Now, let me take just a second and say one of the ways that we can do something similar is with regard to our secret sins. And you all know what I'm talking about, those sins that you can keep private. Even pornography has become one of those, hasn't it? When in my adolescent years, if somebody wanted to look at a provocative image and you didn't have certain channels on your TV, which I didn't, you would have to go down to the movie store and risk being exposed by renting a movie. Nobody was going to do that. Very few, I think, would, would take the chance of doing that. Today, you can be alone in the privacy of your own home and look at that anytime you want. And that's just one example of many sins that you can keep secret. So let me ask you today, are you an individual whom if everybody here were to be asked, tell me about that person, they would say, he is holy, she is holy, because they look at the outside and everything looks great, but you know that you've got these secret sins on the inside, things that no one sees, things that no one knows about, that's the case, I want to encourage you this morning to confess those to the Lord and repent, to turn away from them. Because what Jesus calls us to is not merely external shows of obedience, but to commit ourselves from within to obey Christ. Jesus continues this conversation. In verses 42 and 43, he notes their neglect of inner holiness. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus says at the beginning of that, you're so particular on your tithing that you actually take the, the herbs that you would get from your garden, maybe a, a small little herb here, and you divide it up into tenths. So you make sure you, you, you tie that little bit. The problem is, as you do that, you're chasing all kinds of prestige, desires from other. You're neglecting justice. You're neglecting love. I mean, love is such an important aspect of the Christian life that Paul can say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, if you do something as sacrificial as give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, it doesn't count for anything. And here are the Pharisees, we're again looking good. No, no, we're doing this. We're, we're doing every little thing. We're, we're tithing even the, the tenth of our mint. Just as fine, you should keep doing that. But you shouldn't neglect these other things. You're corrupt inside. And everything that, that you can do that will let you look externally holy, you do. Without doing what is most important. Jesus compares them to unmarked graves. Now, 
That doesn't really communicate to us, so let me explain to you how this would work. The idea was that if an individual came in contact with a dead body or a grave, you would be unclean. You would have been corrupted. Consequently, one of the things they would do is they would greatly mark a grave. You know, here's a grave, look out, you know, wide berth here, right? Walk around it. If there were an unmarked grave so that no one could see it, then it's theoretically possible you could walk right over top of that grave. You don't even know it. It was unmarked. You didn't see it. And what happens is you walk right past it. You walk right over top of it. Now, all of a sudden, you've become unclean and you don't even know it. Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's what you're like toward others. You're like unmarked graves. You do all of this stuff that looks externally obedient so that others think, I want to be like them. I want to pattern my life after the Pharisees. The problem is, inside you're corrupt. You're pursuing all kinds of sinful things that people don't even know about or see. And what's happening is, you're bringing in these individuals and you are corrupting those whom you're teaching. You are corrupting those who you're following. You're like unmarked graves and they don't even realize how they're being corrupt by you. This might be like, a pastor in our day and age who stands up and because he wants to appear impressive to the culture and those who oppose Jesus Christ, minimize the LGBTQ agenda and the threat that that is towards individuals' lives. And so they say something like, listen, if you're, if you're walking in a, a same-sex relationship, that's okay. If you're walking in heterosexual immorality, that's okay because he wants to appear cool and great. And as he does that, and as he has this goal, he's like an unmarked grave, bringing in many others and corrupting them. Jesus says, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And then finally, in the text we read, verses 45 through 52, amazingly, when Jesus says something like, you're, unmarked, you're like an unmarked grave corrupting others, and your response is, hey, I think he's also speaking about me. That's probably a bad sign about that individual, isn't it? But that's exactly what the lawyers do. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. As if to say, this might not have been your intent, but all that stuff you said about the Pharisees, that's true of us as well. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, my bad on that one. Didn't mean to insult you. Rather, in verse 46, he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens too hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. Woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so that you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, if you've taken away the key of knowledge, you did not enter yourselves, and you've hindered those who were entering. Jesus says, it appears the lawyers were building memorial tombs to the prophets. That, that is, they were, they were building these memorial tombs, these tombs as memorials to say, we know that the prophets were killed in generations earlier, but we're building these memorials as a dedication to them, maybe as a way of saying this, had we been alive then, we would not have persecuted the prophets. We would not have killed them. See, 
Look what we're doing in the present. Seems that that's the temptation of every generation, doesn't it? Say, let us do something today to show that we're better than those in the past. But Jesus says to them, I have news for you. You would have done exactly what your fathers did. In fact, by building these memorial tombs, it's as if you're completing the picture. They killed them, and you built their tombs. Now, how can Jesus be so confident? How can he say, I know you have done exactly what they did when they killed the prophets? The reason he can be so confident is because he's standing in their midst as the Son of God, and they are opposing him. In some ways, we might say that the fathers did the lesser evil. They merely murdered God's prophets. From Abel to Zechariah. The reason Jesus mentions these two is because when you read your Old Testament, the Hebrews would have ordered the Old Testament, yes, starting at Genesis, like our Old Testament does, but the last book of the Old Testament would have been Second Chronicles. And so, the last prophet killed in Second Chronicles is Zechariah. The first righteous man killed in Genesis is Abel, Cain's brother. Just saying, you've murdered all the prophets who were sent from God, and now God has sent His Son. And you're opposing Him as well, and they would murder Him as well. Jesus warns them then that they are individuals who have not only refused to obey God's Word and enter His kingdom, but they're making sure that others disobey as well. What Jesus is saying by all of these rebukes is that He demands all of us, not only external obedience, but internal obedience as well. You and I need to make sure that not only are we walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, but we're ensuring that others walk in obedience as well. This is, I think, a particular area where parents can have weakness. I've watched this over the years and prayed the Lord would spare me from this. But one of the weaknesses that I've watched parents have in whatever, 23 years of pastoral ministry is that parents, when they're not discussing their own children, can oftentimes speak very clearly about what God demands. They could advise someone who's not their child in a way that's very clear. But sometimes when it comes to our own children, that's where our knees buckle. We might say, I know that my son has begun dating this unbeliever, but my son has been so lonely. And I, I just really want him to have a good situation. Or I, I know that, that, that she shouldn't walk away from her husband. He's done nothing worthy of being divorced, but man, she's been so lonely and miserable in her marriage, and I want to encourage her in that. We've seen this kind of thing over and over and over again. And what Jesus says when he constantly says in these verses, woe to you, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you lawyers also, is when he says woe to you, he's saying to them, the judgment of God is on you. One of the things that we must keep in mind as parents is when our knees buckle and we say to our child, I know I'm supporting you in walking away from the clear commands of Christ. What we are saying is, I want you to be happy and go to hell. I want you not to be lonely and to face the judgment of God. 
And what Jesus says is, woe to us if not only would we not enter the kingdom ourselves, but we would hinder others from doing it as well. Brothers and sisters, our responsibility as individuals, as believers, as members of churches, as parents, is to make sure not only that we're walking in obedience, but we're encouraging others to walk in obedience as well. None of us is wiser than God. And so our exhortation to everyone whom we love, and even those who hate us, is obey God. Jesus in Luke 11, 14 through 54 has all kinds of challenges and confrontations, all kinds of rebukes. But if you look at what he says in his challenges and his confrontations, even his rebukes to the Pharisees and lawyers, I think it becomes clear what we as believers, as followers of Christ, must be committed to. We must commit ourselves to making sure that we're about his purpose and vision, his mission. We must be those who commit to know and obey God's word. And then we must commit in our whole being to obey Christ, even turning away from our secret sins. But it may be this morning that you say, I've not done that. Or maybe there's something that's come out in the text where you say, good grief, I'm so convicted. I'm more like the lawyers than I am a faithful follower of Christ. Well, if that's the case, here's good news. We are not righteous before God because we do enough good or avoid enough bad because none of us could do enough good or avoid enough bad to measure up to the perfect righteousness He demands. But here's the good news. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day so that if you and I repent of our sins, turning from them and looking to Christ, placing our faith in Christ, the crucified and risen one, as our only hope, we'll have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to look to Christ in faith and have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you are a believer, I want to encourage you this morning to look to the gospel to repent of your sins and be reminded that you have forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. But I also want to remind us that Jesus Christ did not merely come, live, and die, and be raised so that we might have forgiveness of sins, but so that He might pour out the Spirit into our lives and enable us to obey Him. And so this morning, as we come to the table, we're going to remember what Christ has done for us, but we're also going to remind ourselves that because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have been given His Spirit and now are enabled to obey His Word so that as we turn from our secret sins, we do not have to listen to the enemy saying, you will not be able to obey. And we will say, the Lord has given us His Spirit. Romans 6 says otherwise. So this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to come to faith in Christ. If you are a believer in a gospel-preaching church, would you come with us to the table? The way we're going to come is each row is just going to dismiss each row to the outside, come around, and you'll take a, one stack of two cups and return to your row to the inside. The second row will follow, third row will follow, and the section over here to my left will be a pastor for you as well. And then once we return to our seats, we'll eat together and we'll drink together as a proclamation that we as God's people have heard His Word, and we are choosing by faith to receive and obey it. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.